Hey, Joshua. Hey, Adam. Hey, we're having uh, a nice fall day here in Kauai. How is it in Los Angeles? It's so beautiful. We have just like the perfect autumn weather and it prepares us for our two weeks of winter. That's right. Got to get ready for this <laughs> tough two weeks. Yeah. So as we come into fall, we mm -hmm. have a really cool community of artists and writers. And upcoming on Sunday, November 7th, we have the artistic creative vision class. Yes. So we, speaking of seasons, we have done the winter season, spring mm -hmm. season, and the summer season in that class, in which we talk all about the habits of being an artist. And we talk all about the processes you go through so that people can have repeatable, consistent, creative time and reach all of their creative dreams. And so it is our last fall class for that four weeks, November 7th. It's the last season we're doing. Yeah. And it's beautiful uh, uh, timing-wise because we're moving into the season of harvest, you know, the Thanksgiving period and, you know, reaping all the benefits that we did for the whole year. So that's thematically, we're going to be pulling into that. And it's only four weeks long. It's four Sundays in a row interrupted by Thanksgiving, which is like so perfect, right? Yes, it is perfect. A divine timing, the mm -hmm. harvest. And then at the end, uh, we'll go into the winter. And actually, we're not going to talk about it now, but we will be having a winter Christmas, holiday, Hanukkah, mm -hmm. all the holidays, mm -hmm. uh, holiday storytelling show. And our usual Thursday story development class is back. Mm -hmm. That starts 11-11, November 11th. I just still don't know why everyone is obsessed with that. It's double mastery, you know, double eleven, you know, but yeah, sure. mm -hmm. okay. it's a major arcana, you know, stuff like that, Adam. How, how's the, how's our Thursday class been going? Thursday class is so uplifting and so inspiring, and it's we're really you know doing very strong development work uh, at the at the most base level of of story development, character development, and uh, also the development of the writer. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you bring in four minutes of material. Joshua and I work with you privately, one of us, but, and then you share and you keep doing successive rights of development. It's a it's been absolutely game changing that class. So. We wanted to let you know those two as we come into fall uh, and before you hear this beautiful uh, interview with Laura Davis, uh, which is all about story as well, uh, there we have lots of fun things coming up for you. Now arriving downtown Santa Monica Station. Hey, Adam, it's time for Notes on Your Adam Lesser. And I'm Joshua Townsend. Welcome to Notes on Your Notes, a podcast about the creative process and storytelling. Special day for us, Joshua. We have a guest. Yes, we do. A very special guest. One who you know very well. It's mm -hmm. the wonderful Laura Davis, best-selling author of The Courage to Heal. And I thought we'd never speak again. She's here for the past 25 years. She's taught writing as a tool for healing and self-discovery. And she has a new book, The Burning Light of Two Stars. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. Delighted to be here with both of you. Um, so, Joshua, we've had guests. Yes. Many guests over the last three, four years of the show. But this is a very special guest for one reason, which is that this is someone you worked on for many months, maybe more, maybe over a year, 
uh, on their book with them. Yes, it's true. Uh, Laura Davis and I, we worked together for about a year and a half. About Is that about right, Laura? About? I think maybe, yeah, a year and a half, two years. Two year years, half, probably. Two years, yeah. mm-hmm. It was a year and a half, but it felt like two years. No, 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 it was the other way around. And uh, we had the best time. It, it went through uh, so many different you know, shifts and changes in terms of, I think our first session together was just like, hey, read this chapter, give me some ideas. Was that, was that how it started, Laura? How did it start? Uh, I, well, I was really struck, you know, I'd only, I'd never worked with a, a coach before. I'd only worked with editors, lots and lots of editors over, you know, a 30 plus year career as an author. And so I was used to the way editors work, which is you send them your manuscript and they mark it up and they comment on the words on the page. And you really didn't want to read my book. <laughs> At first, I was really taken aback that that was not the way you worked. You weren't even going to read the thing. I thought, well, how is he going to work with me? Um, but you really were very interested in the story and you forced me to articulate the story, which I could not do at all at the beginning. I was just so wedded to the words on the page. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was really transformative for me. And I, I don't, I absolutely, Joshua would not have completed this book without you. I'm a hundred percent sure. Um, because there was something, I was really, really stuck. Um, I didn't, I didn't know enough even though I've been teaching writing for 25 years, and even though this is my seventh published book, I didn't have the skills I needed to complete this particular project. And I, I needed to learn a lot more, particularly about storytelling. This was my first story. My other books weren't nonfiction, you know, kind of self-help information books, and I really knew that genre, but this was a story. And I didn't know how to sustain a story over 346 pages. I had to learn. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, because your writing is impeccable. I mean, th- there's nothing to say about your writing. Is, isn't that interesting? Right. The, yeah. the actual logistics of, um, yeah. 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 I mean, you know, your writing is like, wow, you know, you can't touch it. It's just like, it's like it sings off the page. And then there's this whole other complexity. You know, Ab and I talk about this often on, on this podcast, which is the difference between long form and short form. And for you, it's a little different because you've already worked in the long form, but the long form was, wasn't as dependent on the story. Um, so yeah, that's a very interesting process. Very interesting. So this leads me into um, the big question I wanted to ask you, Laura, today, which is, it's because we don't always get to chances, which is that you chose to work with a coach on this book and you know, you've written, I think six books. Is that right? Yeah. This is number seven. Actually it's number eight. I had a self-published flop uh, (laughs) midway in my career. I don't usually count that because it just mostly sat in boxes in my daughter's closet. And she just complained about it. Would you get those fucking books out of my closet? And they just sat there for her whole upbringing. I love that. You're, I love that you're admitting that on this show. (laughs) Makes me like you more, Laura. Um, uh, but let me just say, you know, so you have written eight books, including an amazing <laughs> mid-career, let's just say a B-side to uh, the Laura Davis album. Um, and you've probably worked with a number of editors over the years. And I just wanted to know what you felt the difference was between working with someone like an editor and then working with someone like Joshua, who plays a pretty different role. Well, I think the fact that Joshua's background is theater, was really powerful for me. I mean, for one, my mother was an actor and this is a this is a mother-daughter story that I've written and she was an actor. And actually in its first iteration before I ever came to Joshua, I wrote it as a play 
that was another failure uh, because I didn't know anything about plays. <laughs> Writing a play, but I wrote the whole thing as a play. I showed it to a friend of mine who's a, a theater director and she just looked at me and she said, Laura, this is not a play. This is not theatrical at all. Go back and write it, write it as narrative, you, you know, write it as a memoir. Um, so, but I, I still had this feeling of, it was a very, I knew it was a dramatic story. My mother is one of the most dramatic characters I've ever come across in real life or on the page or on the stage. Um, but I really didn't know how to, I, I didn't know how to have this driving through line that would keep people turning the pages. And I, I was really despairing because I'd written a lot of really strong individual scenes, but I had no yeah. idea how to create them into a narrative. And I think one of the huge challenges of memoirs, you're like throwing everything in, you know, you have your whole life and what do you leave out and what do you put in? And I really couldn't answer that. I, I came with some, I don't know how many pages I had, but way more material than I could ever, ever, ever use. And you know, what was the story? And that's that's what Joshua challenged me to find out. And it it wasn't in any, we, there was a lot of kind of dialectic conversations back and forth. And he would give me really interesting exercises um, that were nothing like what any editor has ever asked me to do. And I often was pissed off at him and, uh, you know, loved him too. I mean, it was just like, it's a very intense relationship. And yeah much more than than an editor you know who i don't know it's much more almost intellectual this felt much more hot and emotional um and and I, because i had to really get into that deep emotional place to pull this off i mean it, you know just for those listeners so they understand this is a deeply personal story about your relationship with your mother who you know comes to santa cruz to live with you nearby you excuse me at the end of your life, at end of her life, and then there's a whole background of that of a sexual abuse history um, at the hands of your grandfather and her presence for that. You know, so this is yeah, not basically you have you have someone who has utterly betrayed you, and how do you relate to them at the end of that person's life? And can you take care of someone who betrayed you? Um, yeah. that, that's really what the story is about, and what what's required. Can you open your heart after it's been so incredibly damaged for good reason? Mm. And that's the, that's the, the trajectory of the, of the character of the protagonist. Did you feel um, that maybe I wonder if in some ways you, in order to complete this book, the sort of intellectual editing of an editor was not going to work because it was such a deeply personal, intimate book, you maybe perhaps had the wisdom or had to work with someone it was going to force you to deal with sort of the emotional core of the book. You know, I, you know, I remember sobbing as I wrote many of those scenes. So it's not like I hadn't been in touch with the deep emotion of the scenes, but there's something about, I, I never could find the through line. Um, and I, I, at first I was the, um, victim in the story. My mother was the uh, antagonist and that, you know, I'd been working away from that for a long time, but in the very early parts, but I had to really, um, I had, you know, my, my, my most famous book is called The Courage to Heal. And I had this friend of mine who's an editor. And she said to me one day, she said, Laura, this is not the courage to heal. It's the courage to reveal. And, and her point was that I was really making myself look too good on the page and that I had to really start revealing much more of my own underbelly and my own failings. And the two of us had to become equally um, 
flawed characters. And I feel like I have achieved that. And, and I, Joshua really helped me with that. I remember one assignment you gave me, Joshua, that was so interesting. It was, you had me make a list of the secret bonds I had with my mother. Like, and it was thing, you know, like things that just the two of us had that maintain this glue. Because the question was, why would, when someone betrays you that severely, why would you want to continue being driven to have a relationship with them? And, and it was these secret bonds. And it was things like, uh, we both loved the movie Streetcar Named Desire. And I knew that my mother was a closet smoker and she pretended to the world she didn't smoke. And there were like, I don't know, 30 things on this list. It had to do with things we like to cook together or things we like to eat in a particular way. Um, things we like to, we both love masterpiece theater and we love to watch the Oscars together. And at first, when I started making this list, I we, we love to play 500 Rummy together. We're both card players. So these little things created this kind of glue and Joshua really helped me um, mine those. And, and he always was asking me questions uh, that were, so much more complicated and and i'm there was this one scene one of the most dramatic scenes in the book is is uh when i tell my mother um i tell her about the incest with her father you know which i did in a phone call and the first draft of that story i'm you know this like scared terrified young woman and she is this ogre and joshua had me rewrite it over and over again and find the moments of tenderness from her in that phone call. And as a result, the, the, the scene now is this incredibly nuanced, complicated emotional interplay between mother and daughter where it's changing in every moment and the reader doesn't know which direction it's gonna go in. There's no, there's no hint of the outcome. And that was another thing I learned from you was don't leak, right? Don't leak, don't, don't let, let on what's gonna happen next to the reader. And you always were having me plug those leaks. I really learned that from you. That was incredibly valuable. When do you reveal things? I, I really didn't know that. When should certain information be given and when should it be held back? And um, I felt like you were so masterful with that from your theater background. It's a really important aspect of what you're talking about. And this, this, this is gonna help everybody who's in this world of writing in any form. And that is, is, is there's a very strong desire for the person who's writing it, who's also usually the lead character, and they, they want to demonstrate what they want to, what they, what they know too early. It's like I, I tell people very often, you know too much. And because you know so much as the writer, not as the character or the person in the narrative, that there's nowhere to go. So if I know so much in the beginning, well, that's what I know. And I go, yeah, I understand that's what you know, but that's what you know now, not what you knew in that moment. And then to take that even further is, is the, the writer knows how the scene ends, but the character doesn't. And that's what you're talking about. And that's what keeps the struggle alive between two people. And that's what um, makes it a page turner. And that's what people go, oh my God, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Because literally both of you don't know. And then, and then we tend to leak not only our character, but we leak over the information to, in this example, to your mom, where she's like, what, 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 what do you want now? Or whatever it is, you know, a pre-concept pre or a pre-condition. Whereas how much more revealing it is, is, oh, so great that you called, what can I do for you? I'm not saying this isn't worth seeing at all. But, you know, and then, and then slowly it evolves to this, this reveal and this whatever it is, whatever's gonna happen in the scene. And one thing I wrote down here while you were talking was 
was that there is no scene and there is no end to a scene. Because people think there's an end to a scene that you're getting to, but you don't. I don't understand. Tell me more. Well, this, like, is, this is exactly uh, how we would talk when we were uh, doing our code. What? What is he saying? Uh, what? There's no scene. Yes, there is. It's right here. What's he talking um, about? Remember that scene that we that we worked on uh, with um, um, the slamming of the screen door and the lady in the, in the, in the where, your mom, where your mom lived, and then the aftermath of that of that scene. Yeah, that's what I mean. Do you remember all those all those discoveries you were making because? The scene wasn't over when you thought it was over. I'm using quotes here, but to share about that, because I feel like that—that's like a good example of what, there is no scene. Well, it's just that that the scene you you chose you choose a chunk of reality and you you cut it at you begin at one end and end at the other, but it continues afterwards. Um, and I, I think that really helped because there's like a through line, and I think that's you know that's from acting. Uh, the little bit I know about acting, I think that's. Um, something an actor has to know where they were the moment before they walked on the stage. And they have to know where they're going after they leave the stage and what the other characters are doing. And so it was very much like that. So there was this, this continuity. Um, and sometimes, you know, where the scene would end or where it would begin would change dramatically. I mean, that's something I was really used to is that, you know, you write hundreds and hundreds of pages and, and they're not, they're not all going to get used. Many of them are not. And that, um, I think the more experienced you are as a writer, the more you're willing to throw out without really thinking about it. Um, you know, I have a lot of beginner writers and they think, well, if I write 300 words every day at the end of this many days, I'll have a finished book. And I'm just like looking at them. Well, okay, you may think that, but you know, let's see what happens. You know, like good luck with that because people don't realize it's like rewriting and redoing and then like this whole scene that you spent months on goes out the window because it just doesn't fit anymore. Um, Laura, it's really interesting um, what you said about the rewriting of the scene on the phone with your mother discussing uh, the incest with your grandfather. And I'm just curious, did adding nuance to that scene actually change how you remember what happened or how you process that trauma or grief? Like, did having to rethink the emotional tone of that, did it absolutely, change Yes, you? absolutely. You know, I, I think uh, it was very humanizing for my feelings about my mother, you know. Um, and I, I, you know, I think writing often does that anyway, is that you, you, um, you get to know your characters, you fall in love with them. And um, I had to really see her incredible strength, her incredible courage, um, and, and also that she just really did the best she possibly could with who she was and when she was, you know, her background and, you know, she'd grown up with this man as her father. I mean, there were so many complexities. Um, but yeah, writing that scene really helped me not move away from black and white thinking. I, I don't think there's any black and white thinking in the book anymore. And, and I, you know, my favorite comments from people, you know, are how nuanced it is and how the character, there's no black and white characters in this book. You know, there's two flawed human beings really trying their best to love each other under very difficult circumstances. And I, that was really important to me. In fact, I, I had a, I used a lot, I use a lot of beta readers. It's always been part of my process for all my books. So I had maybe, I don't know, 70 to a hundred beta readers for this book, maybe a hundred at different phases, maybe 30 at a time. And one of the questions I consistently asked was how does the mother character come off? Um, because I really, 
I did not want to create her as a villain. I really wanted her to be fully human. Um, and a lot of people said, I loved your mother. You know, I was exasperated by her, but I loved her. She was, what a dynamic, powerful character. Um, you know, and I think, I think those exercises Joshua gave me really um, did help with that quite a bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering some of your scenes right now, and I'm just, I get, I get chills up and down my spine, you know. I, I won't reveal them, but, but you know, there's, there's just so many wonderful moments. Well, like that drive, what's that one? The, uh, oh, yeah, the in the car, drive? where we're in the car. Yeah. That, that's kind of an interesting, that was a really interesting scene I'd love to talk about. It's my favorite scene in the whole book. Awesome. And basically, my mother and I, we were still very estranged, but we were visiting on this rare visit. We're on the East Coast, and we went to some kind of event, family event, and we were alone in a car for about four or five hours driving in a pouring rainstorm. And during that uh, drive, it was almost like time out of time, we stepped out of our typical hab habitual roles. And she started revealing things to me about her life that she had never talked about before. And it was this really incredible scene. And the thing that was really interesting is that I didn't really remember much about it except that we'd had this amazing conversation, but I didn't remember where we were going. I had no idea what year it was. I, there were like none of the details. All I remembered was the car, the rain, the conversation, and that she was chain smoking. And so uh, Joshua and I worked together and the focus of that scene is the weather. The weather's a huge, intense part of that scene, the, the constant smoking and what she's doing with her cigarettes and the cigarette lighter even. Um, and so what I learned was that you can write about a, something you don't remember incredibly effectively by, by leaning into what you do know. And, you know, I think that the first drafts of that were something like started with a lot of like, I don't remember this, I don't remember that. And a lot of speculative, it might've been this and it might've been that. And that probably went on for like two or three pages but by the time the book was finished, there was maybe one sentence like that. Otherwise, it was all gone. But I needed to find a way to write about this really important scene that I didn't remember very much about. Um, and so the focus is on what were the things that were said. And, you know, this goes back to the thing of what is truth. You know, I, I, in some ways, that, that's, that did actually happen. But some of the things she revealed in that scene were actually revealed at other times. But for the dramatic intensity of the scene, I did conflate some of the conversations we had at other times all into that one scene. Uh, I'll never forget the, uh, the sound of the windshield wipers in that scene. Never forget it. Yeah, I remember going online and, and, and Googling what sound do tires make? Mm. <laughs> like, like yeah, there's only so many times you could say clack, you know, uh, and also what are the sounds of rain and, and doing that kind of thing and then just being able to create this mood. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. very powerful. Yeah. Love that. That's amazing. I was curious, Joshua, from your end, um, you know, when a writer brings to you a story and there's a, there are very strong feelings of who the good person, who the bad person is, the right and wrong, the way Laura is describing, you know, bringing nuance to the book. Why do you feel it's so important to explore that nuance and what do you, what do you feel like is going on there? Well, there's a thing called the morality play that was popular, like, you know, with the church in like the 14, 1500s. And it was very clearly delineated what was the right answer, what was the wrong answer. There was white hats and black hats, and that's it. 
And I find that to be really helpful when you're creating um, stories that are aimed at like three to six, seven year olds. And then once you cross over into, you know, once you cross seven, you might want to consider other people's points of view. So, um, so that's, that's why it's important because it, it also won't ring true. It, it also, uh, it, 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 because it's one person's memory, yes, but the other person that's in the scene has a memory too, and that needs to be honored, you know? And, um, and it makes it more real, it makes it more compelling, it makes it more interesting. And the other thing that I do my best to do when I'm, when I'm working on, on scenes for, with people is, it's, is to drop this idea of popular psychology. And this is vital if, if you're going to want your story to have legs and last more than you know, 10 to 20 years in terms of making an emotional impact. Because if you can think about films, uh, sorry, TV shows, or, or like Doris Day films from the 50s and 60s, they have almost no emotional impact today. But then you take the same time period and you go for you know, something that's classic, something that's held its own, and you'll see like very powerful scenes. And part of the reason is because they're not going after popular psychology. They're, they're going after, after the, the, the humanity that goes beyond time and space. How, well, how does that relate to like, if you're doing any references to pop popular culture, for instance, like to set a scene or to set a time frame, how do you um, avoid dating your material? Well, it's not the dating of the material, it's the popular psychology of the time. And you can use all the reference points that you want as long as, as, long as you're not constricting the character's emotional life to that. Like a big word right now in popular psychology is narcissist. And, and if I reduce my character to a narcissist, then I've put them in a box and it's too tight. And it doesn't give any space for discovery. And, and it's really important and you'll see it. Like I'm trying to think of like, like a good example of the other side, um, Doris Day films, and I'm not being disrespectful, I'm just saying Doris Day films were built to be popular psychology. Oh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, that one goes, uh, you know, past a Doris Day film and, and it still holds up today. You have when, to go when back. You, I'm curious, Joshua, when you say Doris Day films, what do you feel like, what trope of popular psychology was stuff like that sort of playing into? Oh, it was 100% um, post post whatever war that was and trying the trying to pull the nation together and give them a hope and dream so that they could keep going with their with the lives they had to rebuild so that was like you know the the the, the you know the idyllic husband and wife coming you know playing out their roles buying a house like no emotional reality right like zero got it yeah. i wanted to um bring back something you were just referencing uh laura which was you know, like, what do you do when you know that there is a vital moment between you and someone else in a memoir, but your memory is not great? Um, or even I would say, you're tr let's even move it beyond that and say you're trying to write a scene that's compelling, that has suspense, that is, um, there's a lot of emotion involved. And the details can sometimes be complicated, meaning there can be a pressure to maintain only the literal truth of what happened. And I'm just wondering how the issue of writing truth in memoir, you know, conflating scenes. Um, sometimes people conflate characters. How did you manage that? What did you learn from the process? You know, I think what really matters is that you're honest with your reader. So, you know, most memoirs, including mine, has a little statement called, you know, about this book. I don't remember what I called it, but something like that. 
And I, I basically said, these are the liberties I took. This is how I did it. And I, I don't, can't, I can't quote you what I wrote, but you know, I talked about that I did conflate some scenes and that I approximated dialogue, but that I, as I wrote, I would actually hear my mother's voice in my head. Not, not this, you know, I don't, but I don't remember the specific certain things that she said, you know, a thousand times, like things like, um, if I ever have to use a walker or a wheelchair, just take me out back and shoot me. Well, you know, she said that probably a hundred times. So I, I really remember that particular sentence and some other sentences. Um, but I, I sort of knew how she talked and how she was. And I knew that she would go from like rational to rage in one second, you know? So I knew that dynamic like in my gut. So it was easy to recreate scenes that um, were realistic, but maybe were not exact. I mean, I have one friend who's a memoir writer and she has a perfect memory. She has perfect recall. Like she could remember every conversation she was ever in. I'm, I'm probably at the opposite end of the spectrum. I actually have a poor memory, which was one reason I thought I couldn't complete this book. Um, you know, I think what, what really matters is the emotional truth of the scene and really conveying for the reader how it felt to be there. And, um, you know, the details, do I remember if I was wearing a green shirt or a red shirt or a, you know, a, a dance skin, you know, um, or a turtleneck? No, I don't. But I, I do remember what some of my clothes were at that time. So I can recreate that. Um, and I think I, I always lean into, like in that scene in the car, I leaned into the things I do remember and minimize the things I don't remember. And, um, and sometimes it's like, where do you enter the scene? You enter at the point where you do remember. And I, I also, um, you know, have made use of things like speculation, where it could be like, I don't remember this, but I wonder if it happened this way. Or I think perhaps this is what was going on. And then I'm, I'm not pretending to know exactly what it was. And I'm including the reader kind of in the process of discovery. And I feel like that really um, works well. There's also certain scenes... I just avoided. I mean, I just didn't feel I could, I really had like almost no traction to get into that scene. And so I had to find a different scene that would basically do the same work. And in a memoir, I think that's often possible. And, you know, one thing I did at the beginning, and I think I, Joshua helped me was, you know, what were the pivotal turning points in this story? Each of those had to become a scene. You know, those, those were the, those were the scenes that had to be written and had, to, and the other scenes, some of them could have been thrown away. And I, there were a lot of beautiful, beautifully written, beautifully rendered scenes that ended up on the cutting room floor, you know, because it just, they weren't necessary. Um, that was another thing that Joshua helped me with is the, like the rhythm of, you know, intensity. You have a certain intensity in a scene. Like if you have this super, super, super dramatic scene where people are almost like holding their breath at the end, then you could, you could do something that's maybe not so dramatic. You know, that's that's maybe has more description or is moving the story forward in another way. Or you can move into some backstory or a flashback uh, because the reader almost needs a time to take a breath. You know, unless you're writing a thriller where you're trying to amp it up and amp it up at every moment for a book like mine, there has to be kind of ebbs and flows of energy for the reader. Um, so there were some scenes that were I had this one scene that I was super attached to and it was um my mother, as I said, she was an actor. And when she was living in assisted living at the end of her life, she was in a play, uh, her final play. And it was put on by the, you know, basically the old age home. And she was, um, 
she was the best actor. She could read her lines really well. And it was a really funny scene and it had a lot of humor in it. And it was totally unnecessary to moving the story forward. But I was able to include it because it was on either side of it, it was surrounded by more dramatic material. And, um, you know, I did include some things that were funny and that not everything was, uh, you know, intense, dramatic. And, but those were hard choices to make. And, and Joshua really helped me with those, those decisions. Um, and some of them, you know, I didn't know for a long time what was going to come in and what was going to come out. Um, well, you know, one thing we struggled with the most was the opening. Um, the first third of the book, we, we had readers read it. And, and one of the questions I asked my beta readers is, would you have kept reading if you hadn't promised to read this book? And um, there was one set of readers where a lot of people said, no, I wouldn't have, you know? I mean, there's always the diehard fan who would read anything I wrote, but I'm not so interested. I mean, I love that person, of course, but I mean, in terms of getting criticism, what's more important is the person who said, no, I would have put it down. And then we had to really think about why was that? What's, what's failing in the first third of the book where the, the hook was not set to make people want to keep reading? Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting because when I read the opening, you know, I've said this to you, Laura, I thought it, you actually had a very difficult structural and story challenge, which is that you had to set up the relationship with the mother, but th that relationship, the import, why her coming to live in Santa Cruz has to be told through the lens of everything that has happened in your life, primarily the experience of incest at the hands of your grandfather and the huge almost fame and career you had as a result of writing Courage to Heal. So it changes your way, like seeing that through the specificity of that. And that's a difficult setup to do. You see this in film a lot. It's very hard to set up a complex backstory of everything that's come before the character, right? And um, it was difficult. I thought it was artfully done, you know, when I read it. And um, I wanted to ask you, Joshua, like, how do you approach story sometimes when someone comes in with a large volume of this work and they're trying to figure out what needs to stay? What are the turning points? What are the compelling scenes? And they don't even have a clue that they should be thinking about that. How do you begin to work with them? Great question, Adam. Nailing it down. Um, I, I, Laura and I are, are smiling at each other deeply because, because many, many, many late night conversations went on about this. It's not only, it's only what you say, but like when you say it, how you roll out the story, where's the entry point, where's, you know, and, and getting to that, to that hook, which also, you know, um, moves away from this thing of, well, that's what happened, you know, memoir, you know, um, and, um, and getting away from the, and then, and then, and then. Because that comes up a lot in, in long form narrative. And then, and then, and then we need to have um, action and reaction, cause and effect. But how, how do you do it? Well, first of all, you get an amazing writer like Laura. That's the first step. So you have amazing material to work with. Um, then after you have that in place, um, then you just really roll it out many, 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 many times to find, to find out what it's or to begin to find out the exploration of what is this story really about? Remember how many times we would ask that question, Laura? Right. Yeah, and there were a lot of different possibilities. You know, yeah. it, it was, was it like a spirit, this, remember there was a, some period where it was going to be this like spiritual connection between these two souls. And I had my dead twin sister was in there. And somehow there was like this almost 
other world that was that didn't last very long but that was one possibility um, th there were just so many there were different slants and each one would have had the story roll out differently yes yes and 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 that that's well said and that's and that's what we that's what we worked on which is like well what is this really about which is you know essentially the through line but it's it's really encapsulating it but after reviewing all the material and then once you start to make commitments to like no no this is really what it is it's really not really about me and my sister who passed away at birth it's really about da 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 da, da. and then you start harvesting um, the material and then you start sequencing the material um, and you know the harvesting you know separating the wheat from the chaff doesn't mean that doesn't mean that the material that you're not going to uh, uh, pick wasn't great it's just not going to support the story that you want to tell you know, and, and that's a discovery process. It's not like I, it's not like I, I had a map and I wasn't sharing it with Laura. It was really, you know, it was, you know, it's a journey that you go on together and you, you know, it's give and take. What, what, what say you, Laura? Oh, I, I just want to say, give you a compliment that, that I think one of the, the greatest attributes in working with you is you never told me what to do. And, you know, I think about when I'm coaching people with their, about their writing or looking at their work, I often have really strong opinions of what I think they should do, uh, which sometimes I'll express and sometimes I won't, but you never did that. And I don't think you ever told me what I should do. And, and sometimes I wanted you to, I, I wanted you to do it, like fix this, you know, can't you just take this burden off my shoulders? Can't you just tell me what sequence this should be already? Damn it, you know? Um, but you didn't do that. You, it, was, it was always that feeling of discovery. I think that's the word you just used, that you helped me discover my story. And, and I felt like it was, um, I was empowered in the most powerful way because not only is my story good, in fact, I think it's a great story now, but I learned those skills that I could apply to the next story. Yeah. And whereas if you had just, if I just had an editor fix it, I wouldn't have learned anything. So, you know, through the struggle we went through, I learned so much about what a story is, you know, and um, the arc of a story and the rollout of a story and what, when to enter and when to leave and what to put in and what to put out and character development and so many other things um, that not only I've benefited from, but all my writing students have benefited from, you know, the, the up level of my skill. And I think one of the things that's been really fantastic is that after having published a lot of books and teaching writing for so long to at this point in my career to have learned so much new was just like thrilling beyond words. And I, that that's because of you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. And, and I, I appreciate your willingness and, and you're showing up and, 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 you know, while we're, while we're, we are discovering it together, trusting that process of, you know, going on that journey, even though, you know, we're doing it, we're finding it out together. One of the things that, that, I, that I thought that you were masterful at in terms of mm, being open to it and not making a demand on it, which is really important, is remember that exercise you said where you made a list of like 30, 35 things of, that you and your mother like really like were tight on? Mm -hmm. And what happens is, is, you know, those exercises are coming from a very real place in the moment of like, oh, okay, I'm discovering that this needs to come in now. Okay, got it. So you, so you went and did that work and then you bring the work in. And a lot of times what happens is the work just sort of sits there and it doesn't go anywhere. And that's not good. That's no bueno. 
But on the on the reverse side, you're like, well, I have 35 things. Now let me put them all in, which you didn't do, which is great. But what it does do is it gives you source material that you might use two or three or four of those 35 things. And that's yeah, like one of one of the ones I used was playing cards. Um, throughout the book, my mother and I are playing cards, and and at the end of the book, the cards become. I call it, you know, it's my own little mini mental status exam because she had dementia and I could assess her status by how she played cards. You know, like at one point she never tried to hide her cards from me anymore, which is, you know, such a symbolic, um, you know, so symbolic. And I didn't intend, I didn't think, oh, this is a great symbol, but it just worked that way. You know, that she knows she, her cards were out on the table and there was nothing hidden anymore literally and figuratively yeah, yeah and i and, and at that same time i think in that scene i said i you know i had stopped keeping score long ago mm, you know wow. so th these these things become uh they, they were very that was very effective and then you see me playing cards with my daughter you know so there's this and the story very much is this generational continuity um so those little things really you know made a huge difference so yeah that is so cool that you mentioned that because part of part of that work is that see Rummy 500 was already part of your story, right? When you brought it in, it wasn't like a new thing because now we're moving into conscious creation. I'm consciously creating with the Rummy 500 as a, as something that can be my callback or something I can use to help develop my story. And I've, and I've selected as part of these 35, I start looking at it in a different way and it starts to, mm, mm, it percolates. It starts to naturally evolve into the discoveries that Laura just talked about, but you can't, you can't get there without first identifying the Rummy 500, right? And then working with it. How, how have you seen that before, Adam, in terms of conscious creation for work that you've done or that you help people with? Well, you know, I think for me, it's when I'm working with people or working with my own writing, or it sounds like when you're working with Laura, is like you kind of have to look at the details that are most meaningful about that relationship. So what Laura's discussing here is like the moment comes where she no longer hides her cards. And so you start looking at that detail and maybe you just wrote it in, on one layer. You wrote like, this is just the detail of what happened. And then it, it may take you a few times to understand like what was happening for you, Laura, in that moment. Like things that you may not even be conscious of in the moment where it's like, oh, this was the moment where every, like I just accepted it, but it was different. And then you look at the next behavior. Maybe one goes into the kitchen and just sits and stares out the window. And that's the moment where you realize that your mother's part of your mother's mind is not coming back. But, and, and so there's sort of like the literal events, the details of what happened. And then once you write all those out, there can be sort of a, a, a little bit of a portal into the emotional reality of what happened for the character. And to what Josh said is like, sometimes students come back and say, okay, I've got my 10 details. Let's drop them in. <laughs> And like what they don't understand is like, it's not just the 10 details, it's the meaning of the 10 details to the people in the relationship and why they matter and what the character not just did or saw what the details was, but what the characters felt in the moment. Cause that's what becomes heartbreaking or enlivening or joyful. So with that, there are many, many more discoveries to come. Um, we're gonna take a little break here at Notes on Your Notes, but when I get, we're gonna do something very special. Joshua and Laura will be back. And it's going to be uh, very unique. We're just going to have the writer and the coach um, with one another, a very intimate conversation. 
and I personally am looking forward to hearing it. Thank you so much, Laura. There's more. Thank you, Joshua. And we'll be back in a minute. Hey, this is Adam. And just before we get back and show you the amazing uh, Laura with Joshua talking one-on-one, it's just so interesting listening to Laura because it's so clear that she has like a vision for her creative life. Yeah, she does. And she executes on it daily. And it takes a lot of grit and staying power and commitment to do this kind of what I'll call a long form project. Yeah, absolutely. And it was that desire to be able to help everyone be able to do that, not just Laura, that we started our creative vision class uh, this earlier this year in January. We've, you know, as we said, we've done it for three seasons. And it's really a class that's designed to help everyone find their own creative process in their vision so they can get back to their creative work. They can find the grit that Joshua is talking about. Mm-hmm. And it has to do with self-awareness because you have to have an awareness of where your strengths are and in play to those strengths and the areas that you need development, develop them if you need or outsource it. But the idea is to create release relaxed, to create what you want and get it out into the world so you can enjoy it. It's just been a total pleasure for Joshua and I to see people figure out their process and get their work going and be working daily on their work. Visual artists, musicians we've had now, uh, and then writers, a lot of writers. And so if you're interested, November 7th, we get going. It's a Sunday. It's just a way to set the plate for the week. You come in, we work with you in your process, and you can just hit Monday morning running, ready to create, um, which is the way we designed it. It's an hour and a half class. Um, So if you're interested, email notes on your notes at gmail.com, notes on your notes at gmail. Um, It's going to be an amazing class. And without further ado, I give you... Okay, here we are, part two of our interview with Laura Davis here on Notes on Your Notes. Adam uh, was kind enough to come in for the first part, and we had a great chat. And now it's time for Laura and I to really dig deep into our process and talk more in detail about some of the scenes that we worked on and how that evolved into the into the amazing uh, uh, book memoir that it is today. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. So it's kind of fun to have this this talk be public instead of the way yeah. it always was. Yeah, it was always the, the private talks. So let's talk about um let's talk about the title and, and let's work backwards a little bit. So the title used to be the title the original title was Wholehearted. Mm-hmm. And um, that came from a conversation with my uh, dear friend Karen Zellen at Tassahara Zen Mountain Center. I was teaching a retreat and uh, she came along and <clears throat> she was my roommate and we were talking about the book and that title came out of our conversation. And it came from her. And I loved it. I immediately thought, that's it. That's the title. That's the trajectory of this character. And so I was became immediately wedded to it. And I started promoting it that way. You know, whenever I talked about the book, that's what it was. Um, my beta readers who gave me lots of endorsements, they talked about the book called Wholehearted. Um, and, you know, but as I got closer to publishing it, I, I um, talked to two different publishers about this book. And in both conversations, they said, you know, Laura, you might have to change the title. And you know, I've been around the block enough that I don't say no. You know, it's like, okay, sometimes a publisher knows better than I do. And then the first thing was that uh, Brene Brown, that's her word that she uses deeply in her work is wholehearted. So it was kind of like she had that territory and I was going to be using it and it would be always associated with her. And the other is I, you know, I went on Google and I looked up wholehearted and there were probably a dozen books with that title. And that's when I started to think, well, and it, it just was, it, 
people don't know what that means. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't grit. It had no grit. And this is actually a very gritty story. There's a lot of conflict in it. It's not sweet. It has many sweet moments, but it's not a sappy story. Um, and so, you know, basically the publisher said, you know, I had a really short window to come up with a new title. And um, I started to panic. And, um, and so what I did is I crowdsourced the title. I went on Facebook and I, you know, basically gave a little short description of the book and, um, you know, said I was looking for a new title. I gave the original title. Um, and then I'm, I'm in this um, binders group, uh, memoir, women memoir writers, which has, I don't know, 6,000 members. And I put it up, posted it there. I got between those two groups. And then I think I also sent it out to my email list. At least I sent it out to all my beta readers, which was like, you know, 100 people. Who, who knew the book quite well, they'd all read it. And I got probably about 500 suggestions over the course of a week. And uh, part of the conversation with the publisher, which was quite interesting was my original title was going to be Wholehearted and Unlikely Mother-Daughter Love Story. And basically what they said is don't give away your story with your title. You know, don't, don't, don't tell, don't, People don't, you don't want people to look at your title and feel like they know the outcome of this story, that it's a love story. And, and I feel like it is a love story to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that made sense to me, that, that you want to engage people in not knowing the outcome of the story. So they're going to want to keep turning the pages to find out what happens and how it happens. And it was either going to be, does it happen? Do these two people figure out how to love each other? Or it would be, this was so incredibly unlikely, how the hell did they accomplish it? And it was going to be one of those two, you know, and now when I talk about the book, depending on who I'm talking to, I might talk about it one of those two ways, but I decided to go for a title that was more intriguing. And a lot of the titles that came back were, um, I guess I'd call them kind of sappy, you know, sappy titles, mm -hmm. sweet titles, like Hallmark card titles. And, and some of them were clever. There were some great puns. Uh, I don't remember, I don't have the list in front of me, but some of them were really good. One of my favorites was, um, it was a Beatles song. It was End in the End. I, that was like my favorite for a couple of days. But then I went and looked it up and there was a book that had just come out that year um, about the Beatles called End in the End, uh, which I, you know, so I had to reject a lot of things. And I was getting down to the wire where I really needed a title. And um what I started to think about was that one of the things, the, the book opens with a fire. It's one of the, the opening scenes, there's a fire. And I wanted there to be some kind of, and, and there was a tremendous amount of heat and fire between my mother and I, it was a very volatile relationship. And so this theme of fire and heat really resonates through the book. And I consciously went through, this is at the very end, I mean, like the very last edit, you know, the, after 10 years of working on this. And on every page, I tried to include some kind of imagery of fire or heat. And I went to a thesaurus and I looked up flames. I looked up, you know, I, I use words like conflagration, um, heat, sweat, um, burning, uh, broiling, boiling. You know, I just made a list of, I don't know, a hundred words that had some relationship to heat. And then I started trying to use them without repeating them. And it was so much fun. I mean, this was like, I nerded out on this. This was like the nerdiest thing as an author um, to be able to do this. And it was so much fun. And I did it. You know, I went all the way through the whole book. And I don't think 
anyone who isn't hearing me say this would notice it. Mm-hmm. It's subliminal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's done in such a way that it's just woven into the the sentences, and it seems like these words just have to be used, but they were very consciously chosen. Um, so at the very very end, I wrote one last kind of pitch for a title, and I said I'd really like something that has to do with heat or fire. And um, there's a woman named Karen Bartholomew. And she was one of my beta readers. And ironically, she actually was a visiting nurse in Santa Cruz, where I live and where my mother lived and died at the end of her life. And she had been my mother's nurse. She had been a visiting nurse. So she actually had met her. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And she wrote to me after I had already turned in another title, like the whole thing was resolved. The next day she wrote to me and she said, what about the burning light of two stars? And I was just like, oh, my God, I love that. And I sent it to you know, my um, editor at the publishing house at Girl Friday Books. And she said, we love it. It's the title. So that's, 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 a, <laughs> that's, that's a staggering, that's I, a great at, story. At first, it took me a really long time to even be able to say it. Like I couldn't remember it, you know, and now I have grown to completely love it. Um, and I also decided we needed a subtitle um, because that doesn't really communicate that much. So it, it is now uh, the Burning Light of Two Stars, a mother-daughter story. And some of that is strategic because you want Google to search for, anyone searching for mother-daughter, you want your book to come up on Amazon, for instance. So, um, but I took out love story. I just, a mother-daughter story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the back jacket, this was another interesting thing. The back jacket initially sort of said what happened at the end and we changed it to a question, you know, something like, will she learn to be, open-hearted before it's too late so the whole package presents a question as opposed to a solution or a you know a given story mm-hmm. and um but yeah it's, it's it's such an interesting process at each stage there are these decisions we made many of them together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. choice points yeah mm-hmm. I, I call them choice points but yeah it's uh and some of them are revocable and some of them aren't and i i just love i didn't i i didn't hear that part about how your mother one of the nurses of your mother's was the one who actually came up with the actual last round that's amazing that's it's almost like your mom in in a way is sort of revisiting with that right that's beautiful yeah and then the other thing about you know making bringing it home for for people that are are writers themselves and working on this how important it is to you, you don't know maybe right away but eventually to consciously create something like you did with the the burning and the heat and all those words and then to really commit to it and then and then eventually it shows up as like different layers in your work and this is the part this is the part that goes from amazing work to in my opinion art where where you read it through once and you love it but you can't you don't know why and then as you learn more about the process you start to appreciate the different levels that you, the the, the writer, bring to it. Yeah, I, I think writing in layers is something that I, um, I mean, I've always known that to some degree, but I just learned it in a whole different way that each pass on a scene, and each scene probably was rewritten a hundred times, each pass is looking at something different. So, you know, looking at the dialogue or, or looking at the um the movement of the characters or uh, really looking at the setting and, you know, the, 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 you know, I always, you always hear use sensory details and 
you know, it's great to use them, but are they slanted to meet the emotional tone of the scene? You know, I used to give this um, writing exercise in my classes where I would have people um, describe entering a home and they would rewrite the same scene like five times. And the first time it would be write, write the feeling of entering the home, write the scene of entering the home from the point of view of a young couple who have just bought their first home. And then describe the same home from the point of view of a woman who's just come back from dropping her youngest child at college. And then write the same scene from the point of view of an old person who is entering their home for the last time be before being taken to assisted living. Um, and, and I don't remember, you know, just you get the idea. So that, and each time the, the details that, the, that would be described would be completely different. You know, the, the mother dropping the kid at college, she'd look at the doorway and she'd see the little hatch marks of how tall her children were at different ages. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the young couple, they see all this potential and promise in the house. And the, so, you know, how you, um, that, that's another layer is, you know, do the details that you choose to describe your setting match the emotional tenor of the scene. And then like, you know, it might be just a whole thing of looking for leaks, what you taught me about, you know, like, is there a place where you're, you're, you're telling the reader ahead of time what's about to happen instead of letting them discover it with you. Um, I remember there's one line that I really love in the book that you helped me with. It was in one of the opening scenes. I'm talking to my mother on the phone and she's telling me she's, she's this bombshell that she's moving to my town. And it was like, and she, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, she's getting older. Her friends are all moving away. You know, they're, they're moving to assisted living. They're doing this. They're moving to be closer to their children. And then it's like, oh my God, that's me. So it's like, I have the, in the scene, I have the discovery along with the reader. And I, you know, I never would have thought to do that. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh my there's also, there's a lot of inner monologue in this, this book. There's a lot of, you know, what I'm thinking throughout the whole thing. And, um, having that be really honest. And often it's at odds. That's the other thing is that what I'm thinking is at odds with what I'm saying. And that's real life. That is. Um, so that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying the right thing and I'm looking like an ideal daughter, but in my head, I'm like, when the hell could I get out of here? And I think that honesty is something that people have remarked on often when they read the book is they, they really appreciate the honesty. I'm not sugarcoating what actually was happening. Um, you know, one other thing I wanted to, to say that's people always say to me, oh, you're so honest. How could you be so vulnerable? How could you reveal so much? And the reality is what I'm revealing is from the past. Like it's it, when you work on a scene over and over the way we did, mm -hmm. it becomes a story to me, too. And I'm not revealing the current vulnerable edge in my life today, you know, so that it becomes it's it, it's. I want to say it's like a product, but it becomes like a story to me. There's a separation between me and these stories now. They, they've become polished. And that's both wonderful because the stories get really good. But the, I think one of the um, challenges of writing memoir is it, it messes with your own memory of events. Like my memory of this whole period of time is all through the lens of these scenes I've written. You know, everything's been shaped into these scenes. And it's like, where's my own genuine memory of all the things I didn't write about? They've been superseded by the story that we shaped together. Mm -hmm. And and so there is some loss. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, because... See, I often think about... 
why do I remember, not why, but it's not by accident that I remember certain moments over other moments. It's not by accident that certain things bug me in my day as opposed to something else. Because there's something unfinished. Tell me more about that. Like, I always go to this, I don't know why. I, like, like, suppose I have an altercation with like a bank teller, right? Okay. And then later I think about it. Like, right. why do I think about it? Like, why, why am I focusing on that moment as opposed to the moment where I'm at a cash register at a market and, and, and the lady checking me out gives me a nice smile and says, thank you and have a beautiful day. Why don't I think about that moment? Well, we do tend to perseverate towards the negative, don't we? We do. We do go towards the negative. And I feel like the reason why we go towards the negative or what we perceive as the negative is, is that, that there's something there that's unfinished, something that I have to sort out, something uh, created a, a non-alignment a non with me. And that I need to like bring balance back to the universe in that very microcosmic way. Um, and, and so I feel like that's part of, like, that's the micro of what you're talking about in the macro. And so, so if we don't have any, err, if we don't have any err in our life, then, then, you know, it's like, what do we think about? Then we can think about the nice things, right? And we can think about the more pleasant because we're not, we're not working to survive. Because working something out is survival. So we don't do it again, right? So we... And see, as, as writers, see, as writers, as human beings, we try to get out of trouble. And as writers, we try to put ourselves into trouble. And, and that's a great conflict. And that's something that we have to, we, 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 all of us, all artists have to really work with. Like, how can we make this more, more, more challenging for both of our characters to create more conflict, not less? I remember I had this conversation we had once where and this wasn't that long ago and you asked me, um, I think we were talking about the thing about the cover and, and do you reveal the ending of the story uh, or not? And you said, um, when you're reading a story, how much of your attention is drawn towards, how much time do you want to spend on the conflict? And I said, 90%. And you said, how much do you want to spend on the resolution? And I said, well, like 5%. And, and that was your point was that that we're drawn into stories where we see people in struggle. And um, so, you know, that's, that's if we were going to write a memoir about our daily lives, uh, for most people, it would be pretty damn boring. You know, so you, you have to construct a story. Yeah. Um, you have to construct what you're going to leave in, what you're going to leave out to create the, the most dramatic intensity. Yes, yes, because you know one of the reasons that we're drawn to memoir is that one of the reasons we're drawn to even you know move into this world is because we're we're struggling to create meaning out of life, and that and that somehow if we work on a memoir or, or we create a not memoir narrative that through that time through that perspective we we bring a meaning to it and that and we find that uh, a completion. As a human being, we find that we're like, oh, okay, so that's what it means. Oh, that's the red. That's why you went through all that pain. We're looking for rationalizations. We're looking for justifications. We're all those things. And it's so interesting because because in another sense, it never ends. What never ends? 
this idea of completion is, is, you know, like, you know, when you see narratives where they just put a bow on it. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. You know what I yeah. mean? And, and I understand it from a, from an emotional perspective and to have that completion at the end of a, of a narrative, a story, so you can feel good and leave the theater or leave the movie house or close the book and feel like, you know, you know, but, but in real life, there's the next day. Right. Definitely. There's always the next, yeah, there's then what? And then, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, um, you know, we leave, you know, classic storytelling is, you know, you, Shakespeare, you know, leaves with, um, uh, he ends most of his romantic, uh, uh, humorous, uh, plays with a wedding. Right. We don't know what happened the year, a year into the marriage, do we? Mm-mm. But, and that's renewal, right? We, we end on spring, we end on rebirth, we end on, right. Even, even if there's a death in someone's family, we always move towards someone else's child, having a child. You know, I have a question for you, Joshua, because I just know how you and I work together. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious if your process would be similar with another writer as it was with me, or is it completely different? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be completely different. <laughs> because because it, it, it's all dependent on how the other person, you know, like, you know, what offerings they come with. Like, you're an amazing writer. Like, you're an amazing, amazing writer. Like there's nothing to say about your writing. And I know we've had that conversation multiple times. And so it's like, okay, well, if, if, if my writing's so amazing, then, then I'm done. And I'm like, well, if you're, if you were writing like a short story, you know, something that was like five pages or less, there's probably not much to do. But once you get into this other animal of how many pages was your, is your final I think it's like 346 pages, something. It's big. It's a big book. It's it's 90,000 words, which is like the top end for memoir. It's, it's pushing the upper limit. It's a different animal. You know, to hold someone's attention for that long, for those many pages, other things come into play. And, and you, you teach a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of classes where, how many number of pages do you find to be that fit, that flip where someone has to go to the next level in terms of not writing, but storytelling? Um, I, I can't say in terms of pages, but I know, you know, when people want to send me a sample of their work, mm-hmm. they want to send me like 50 pages, but I really only need to read like two or three pages. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I really don't need to read much to see what their strengths and weaknesses are because it's going to be, the whole work is going to have the same mm-hmm. strengths and, and uh, places where they still need to grow. Because, because I'm going to, I'm going to say that's, be, that's, be, that's, it's work of consciousness. It's, it's work of awareness as opposed to technical skill. Most of the time, someone like you, you show up with hundred percent, your skill level is done. It's baked in. Now it's just a matter of how your, what is taken care of. Right. Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, students. Of, I mean, there are some that really, you know, they're beginners and they they really have a lot to learn technically. Yes. Um, just really, really basic things. You know, yes. the same twenty basic things that every writer needs to know who's going to write narrative. Um, you know, you teach those things over and over, but 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 the storytelling is a whole other thing. And I see um, a lot of people get stuck there. You know, they're they're able to, even if they're able to write, they understand the concept of a scene. 
and that a scene has to have a certain emotional center. And I, I didn't really fully understand that, 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 you know, a scene, and that a scene starts in one place and it ends up in a different place. And then the next scene starts in that place and has to end up in a different emotional tone that it can't, you can't have too many scenes in a row where nothing is happening and that the, um, the, the, the kind of standing of the protagonist hasn't changed. Then you, you have kind of a dead space in your book. Mm-hmm. Unless, as I said before, you have a super dramatic scene and then you, you get a chance to have something that's a little calmer or um, doesn't have any kind of switch. But I, I remember towards the end going and looking at every scene and saying, did the scene flip is what I called it. You know, did it go from, you know, the a good place for the protagonist to like a more challenging place at the end or from a challenging place to something more optimistic? Mm-hmm. And that's what created momentum. I think that's we worked a lot on momentum, especially in the early um, the early chapter, the first third of the book. And what finally solved it for me, I mean, aside from just working on it over and over again, is the very last iteration, I cut the scenes, I made them way shorter. So that now there's a lot of really, like, it, I think originally there were like 30 chapters, now there's 70 chapters. And some of them are just a few paragraphs or a couple pages. And they, they're, the, they're moving through time and space um, really fast, and it, it created momentum. It, it's it succeeded. I didn't know if it would. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I call I, you know, the, the most common comment I get from people mm-hmm. is, "I couldn't put your book down," you know, or "I had to keep reading." I I would have stayed up all night. I mean, that's like you don't want you, you want to hear that more than just about anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's gold. Cool. That's gold. Cool. I call that I call that pacing. You know, it's like you, you want to pace it so that. Because you you are you're putting people on on an emotional journey. It's a you know, it's a roller coaster ride, and like a roller coaster ride, you can't have all up, you can't have all down. Right. Yeah, you got to have the up and the down, and there's and there's a certain amount of pacing and expectation and anticipation and release. I mean, it's, and and you have an amazing work ethic, and so you would just keep you would just keep hammering at it until until you found that pacing. It's a rhythm, right? Yeah. Yeah. What about I'm you know one of the scenes that I remember that so I I'm always well I had this conversation with this person the other day and she was telling me this story about her family and what what they did over the holidays or something like that I don't remember exactly. But I'll never I'll never I'll never, I'll never forget. And this is only a few days ago I'll never forget. She said this word she goes and then we saw a family member, blah, blah, blah. And then she kept talking. And, my, and because I, you know, there's no separation between me and like how I am when, when I work, you know, I went, family member, something's up. And so I went, you know, it's very curious you just call that person a family member. Like, who, who was it? What was that about? And then I got, you know, like a 30-minute story about the family member and all the pain and all the suffering that went along with that. So I find moments like that really interesting in life and in story. And in your story, as we're, as we're riffing right now, talking right now, I remember this moment with you and Karen at a table and you're going past her or she's going past you. Uh, it was, it, she, yeah, I'm sitting at a table and you're, I'm making, I'm making a list because I'm a, you know, a list. That was one of the things that was repeated was me as a list maker and my lists and my need to make them change over the course of the book. So you could see that's part of the way you see my change. And I'm making a list of reasons my mother can't live alone. 
And, you know, it's like, you know, all these things like she, you know, I came in the house and the burner was on on the stove or there were these pills on the counter or she wrote a check, you know, for way wrong amount. And I was making this list and I would like make it over and over again, especially when I was frustrated because my life was being derailed every day by her chaos um, at living alone. And Karen came over and she looked over my shoulder and it was like, what the hell are you doing? You know, you're making a list of your mother's weaknesses. What kind of crazy approach is that? You should be building her up. That, that's the scene you're talking about, right? I don't know. There's just something, there's just something wonderful about that scene in, for me because I saw that as such a huge shift for your character. And, and yet it was such an innocuous scene. And that's, that's yeah. all you. That's, that's all you. you. You wrote that scene. It was brilliant. Well, and the thing is, is that in the scene, I'm very defensive because that's how I am in real life. I, you know, someone gives me, uh, confronts me about, gives me some feedback. My first response is no way. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. And then I think about it. So that, you know, the next scene is me going to the beach and um, letting her words sink in and really thinking about the history of how I have denigrated and badmouthed my mother for decades and really taking that in and how damaging that has been for both of us and for our relationship. But, you know, it, it, yeah, it was a really big turning point mm -hmm. uh, because I, at that point, I started trying to look and find positive things, like with as much uh, determination as I'd been making lists of all the negative things, I started looking at the things actually that were good and I felt so much better. Mm. You know, I started yeah. feeling much better and the relationship improved and, um, it was very powerful. And also, you know, that moment of confrontation between us was, it was low key really, because that's how Karen is, you know, yeah. it's kind of low key. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes we as writers, we as people that make story, you know, go for the big, you know, the big, you know, emotional moments, you know, and those little, those little turns are just as important and just as impactful as the big ones, as the big, you know, slamming doors and I'll never see you again and goodbye forever. Right. Yeah. There's a, a, a world famous uh, character actor named Burgess Meredith. I know him. Yeah. And he did a scene once and the scene is, a, you know, a, a ramping up scene. And the guy's like, I don't, why should I believe you? Why should I go with you? And the line of dialogue is, I'm the only, ch I'm the only chance you have, basically. I'm the only chance you have to survive. Words, words to that effect. And he just turned to him, he goes, because I'm the only chance that you have to survive. And in, in the hands of a lesser person, a lesser actor, because I'm the only chance you have, you know what I mean? Uh -huh. And sometimes it's just those little moments like at the dinner table, writing your list. I also appreciate all the things that you were doing in terms of, you know, as, as the evolution of your story progressed is selecting those um, behaviors, all those activities, the list making, the cards. I think there was, you probably had like five or six, which were microcosms of the character's um, transformation or growth. Right. Instead of like, I grew, you, you get to demonstrate it. And that was, you know, you really helped me hone in on uh, what those things might be. Um, and that was one, one of the things I worked with was um, my mother's belongings. Uh, because 
you know, that the story opens, she moves to California and there's this like, you know, I have this obsessive need to make her environment perfect, mm. you know, really to compensate for the, the lack of welcome I'm really feeling. I'm going to do everything right on the outside, even though I'm dreading her arrival on the inside and trying to paper it over with being the perfect daughter. Um, I actually never thought about that till I just said it. But, you know, so there's this intense description of everything we do to make her environment right and a lot of the details of the things in her environment and then she she's moved or she has to move several times over the course of the book and because she's declining each time she moves I, I, there's one of my favorite lines is every time she moved the rooms got smaller you know so there's just it's like her world is shrinking mm -hmm. and you know instead of there being two orange and striped throw pillows there's only one you know and instead of there being 10 masks on the wall there's only you know less and and then at the end the masks on the wall scare her and they have to be put away these were these were masks she had collected traveling around the world so this this sense of her being this incredibly expansive dramatic you know world traveling person and now she's living in this single room where she can't even look at the mask that reminds her of who she used to be because it scares her so her possessions just kept getting honed down more and more and that really showed the claustrophobia of her situation in a much more powerful way. Um, you know, I always love the use of objects. I think objects are so powerful in writing and it, it allows you to, to enter into the emotions of a scene in an oblique way instead of hitting people over the head is someone's relationship to an object. And, you know, because of working with you, I noticed that so much more like I, I'm a fan of um, the good doctor about the autistic savant surgeon. And there's a couple objects in that scene. There's in that series, he has this little scalpel, uh, a plastic scalpel that his brother gave him when he was little. And whenever he's super anxious, he pulls out this little plastic scalpel and it, it has appeared, it's already like season, I don't know, three or four, I don't know what it is, but there's been a lot of episodes and that keeps making an appearance. And the other is this green apple. And those are the two objects for him that, you know, you just see it, it reveals so much about his character. And I, I never would have noticed that if you hadn't taught me, you know, so now I'm very, very aware, especially when I'm watching uh, a visual medium like a movie or TV to look at the every time there's a the, the camera comes in on an object, mm -hmm. then I start tracking that object. Interesting. Because it's going to be, you know, there's nothing, nothing is, I, you know, especially with fiction um, or with a movie or TV, nothing is unintentional. Right. And in a memoir, there's hundreds of things that are unintentional because they happened. And so it, it's a process of going from like all the stuff that happened to consciously choosing in the same way so that every line, every detail has a meaning. It's not just there. I have so many students say to me, well, I say, well, why is that in there? They'll go, well, because that's how it happened. <laughs> and then I have to say, you know, I'm sorry, but that's not good enough. Yeah. I mean, it's good enough if you're writing for yourself, but if you, if you want to publish this into a story that people who don't know you will read, yeah. that's not good enough. You can't just say, well, it happened that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because we actually create meaning. We, we, we create the meaning, which is so exciting. And I have to say that when you do that kind of work, it's very compelling. It's very exciting for me because this is the ultimate show. Don't tell everyone says show don't tell. Right. Well, right. this is, this is the embodiment of that work of showing, not telling, showing me 10 mask, five mask, three mask, no mask. A, th uh, a, th a three bedroom house, a two bedroom, you know, trailer, a, a larger room, a tiny room. I mean, that's beautiful. 
but see what it really comes down to though is is from my perspective is see you could unconsciously create that you could create that without knowing it but as soon as you consciously create it now you can shape it yeah because a lot of times those things they just are like the magic of writing Mm -hmm. but then yes then you then okay now that it appeared what are you going to do with it i think that's great yeah that's the part that i get really excited about because like Someone could watch that The Good Doctor and appreciate it and go, oh, that was fun. That was good entertainment, right? I enjoyed the show, whatever. But then someone like you watches it and they start noticing those things. And that those are the building blocks of what makes it so potent, of what makes it so powerful. Um, and I just find that really um, compelling, which is the same thing with the heavy lifting that you did with, with the, the fire element. See, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go a different, a slightly different direction here is, is you could have done water, but you didn't. And you could make water work. Could. It would change the entire book. And, and that's what gets me excited because see, it's, it's you, ultimately it's your sense and sensibilities as a creative, as an artist that gives birth gives energy towards towards the creation of your book of your of your story so it's not just like oh if someone said oh here's all the stories you write it it could never be the same as you right and you know if i was gonna if i was going to in the back of the book where i'm talking about you know about the book um, and I talk about memory and my fallible memory and a lot of things. I said, you know, if I were to write this story 10 years from now, I would tell it differently. It would be a different story. You know, my perspective on this relationship and its significance and even maybe, you know, some of the main turning points would always be the same, but it would be a different story. I would tell it differently. Because um, I, you know, I have been basically telling aspects of this story in print uh, in publication for over 30 years. And it's, you know, it's like, I think we have these core stories that we live with and that we, um, as creative people, that we keep re-envisioning. And, you know, what I wrote uh, in my 20s about my mother, um, I, did, I think I published my first thing about her and when I was like 23 years old or 22 years old. I wrote a, I wrote a poem about her um, Eat, it was about her drinking, actually. She was, you know, it was about her eating and, and the sound of the fork scraping on her teeth and how I couldn't stand it and the, the ice cubes. And, you know, I don't remember what it was, but that was the first thing, you know. And then and then I wrote, you know, The Courage to Heal. She, she wasn't in there, but the, this whole theme of incest and healing and um, how do you reclaim your life was there, you know. And then I wrote a book called I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. And there was my mother again as a little thread in the book. But it wasn't until now, all these years later, that I was really able to write a much deeper, fuller account of that relationship, not just the little highlights, but like really delving into it. And, um, I, you know, I couldn't have written it sooner and I, I wouldn't have published it sooner. I wouldn't have published. I, I didn't want to publish it until she died. In fact, I waited until her whole generation died out. I mean, there weren't, there were only three uh, people in their eighties by the time I published this. And I waited until they all died um, before I went to publish it um, because I just, it felt respectful. Um, 
and I still have people in my generation, you know, my peers in my family, some of whom will be unhappy about the publication of this book because I'm bringing up once again, you know, the, the, the dirty laundry of the family um, that I had shut up about for about 30 years. I, you know, so I think they're disappointed that, you know, all these years later, here I am writing about this incest again. I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's just part of the frame of the story, the mother-daughter story. I, I couldn't tell the story without talking about this one issue that really was kind of tore us apart the most. I had to include it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a huge part of the book, but it's, it's there. It's, it's in the tapestry of my life. So it's in the tapestry of the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find it interesting that we as, as artists have motifs, right? And the motifs, you know, keep re- reoccurring and reappearing in different ways. We see it in music. We see it in film, especially directors and some writers. Uh, we see it um, visual, a lot of visual artists, the blue period, the yellow periods, you know, different periods that we go through. So uh, I think it is really valuable as artists to really identify those for ourselves and, and, and to say yes to it, you know, as opposed to trying to push it away, like judging it, like, why am I not done with this yet? It's like, well, you're not done because you're, you know, it's a motif and you're working with it. I think I might be done with this now. <laughs> I think I've, I, think I've uh, I, I would love to move on and do something else, I think. Yeah. I, I, you know what I, I always say, I always say that the work will, will, the work will actually speak to that. It, like it won't, it won't be in your work anymore. It won't even be a question because it won't even show up. Because again, we go back to that thing of we only, we only talk out of our concerns. We never talk about what we're not concerned about. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, everything in this, that I was compelled. Yeah. I felt compelled to, I had a lot of reasons not to write it. You know, I didn't feel I had the skills. Or the you know the writing chops. I didn't know how to find the story. I didn't really want to deal with my family, fam- people in my family being unhappy with me after I spent twenty years reconciling with them. You know, I didn't really want to reopen all that. Um, I I had a lot of reasons to not do it, but I just had to do it. And I I also while I was doing it, I had to tell myself I don't have to publish it. That was really critical for me to um, tell myself. You know. I'm just doing, maybe this is, you know, I, I, I really got much more serious about the book after my mother died, which was about seven years ago. I had been working on it before that, but after she died, you know, as part of my grief process. So I thought, okay, this is my grief project. And then I'm going to let it go. You know, it, it took until maybe a year before the end that I really knew I'm going to publish this. But before that, I, I had to create a container for myself where I didn't have to, where I was doing it for myself because I needed to write this story, that there still were things about it I needed to understand. And you know, I think that's really important that you, you, at least for me, for memoir, it's like, I'm discovering the story as I'm going along. You know, I, have, I have general ideas about it, but um, it, it's a process of discovery. It's not a process of reporting the facts. Mm-hmm. And it would be kind of boring if it was reporting the facts to me that it's the process of discovery that makes, made it thrilling and terrifying at the same time. And I love what you just shared about how important it is to give ourselves that permission to, to say, hey, I'm, I may not release this. And I feel like that gives spaciousness or permission to people to, to really reveal deeper truths or, or make discoveries that they, you know, because they don't have that pressure of, I have to. Yeah. So um, we've been talking about this story. 
where can people get the story, Laura? Well, it's a, it's a, a paperback. It's also an audiobook, and it's also an ebook. So anywhere you would buy any of those things, this uh, the Burning Light of Two Stars is available, and um, you can also test it out. Um, you could read the opening um, for free up on my website at www.lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. Um, and if you go there, you could read, I think the first five chapters, which is quite substantial um, and see if it's a story for you. So again, it's www.lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. Awesome. So people can just go to your website, basically, Laura Davis. The only caveat is .net. So make sure to get the .net in there. And then on the homepage, it'll take you to the to where the, the chapters are probably, right? You can, they can just click through and find it. Uh, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah, of course, of <laughs> course, of course. Of course, we have the technology. That'll happen. Um, and um, a birdie told me that you are actually the star of the audiobook. Is that true? Uh, yes. I <laughs> I, yes, I really wanted to record my own audiobook. book. Um, in my 20s, I had a, um, a career in radio, actually. Mm. I was a news reporter, and then I was a talk show host, which was actually the best job I ever had. It's been all downhill ever since. <laughs> I, I've been pretty much self-employed after that. But uh, in terms of jobs, it was such a great job. And I, so I love audio, mm -hmm. and I wanted to do it. And I, I, the, the company I worked with, Pro Audio Voices, I actually sent an audition tape because I, I really didn't want to um, do the voice myself if it was going to hurt my book. Mm -hmm. And um, the woman, uh, Becky Parker Geist, who owns the company, she listened to it and she said, it's the best amateur recording I've ever heard. <laughs> she said, you could do this yourself. So what I ended up doing actually was um, I read the narration and I read all me, Laura's part. Mm -hmm. And then Becky does all the other voices. So she's my mother. She's my brother. She's my, she's my spouse. She's my kids. She's the doctor, the nurse. Um, so it, it's, it, it was really fun to record. Um, and, and also nerve wracking. Mostly the tech was really nerve wracking getting the, you know, the technology to work mm -hmm. was stressful, but now it's behind me. It's all recorded and, and I've listened to it. It sounds great. It's very different experience than reading it on the page, isn't it? Isn't it just? Yeah, I'm so I'm so excited and so happy for you that you did it, and 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 you don't feel like you're being typecast playing yourself. I'm just, <laughs> kidding. I'm just kidding. But how yeah, fun! I mean, but, but wasn't that fun though? Wasn't that fun to breathe life into your words? Yes, it was. It was. It was really fun. Um, and and some of the scenes, I, it was interesting. I felt like I felt them more even though i'd written them and rewritten them for years and years and years when i actually spoke them out loud i um i had a much more visceral emotional connection to the scenes and you know i mean i in my classes i have people read their work out loud for that reason so it's, it wasn't really a surprise but it kind of was a surprise how much more how i could have a different experience with this material that was so intimate to me but it, it felt very intimate. And I, at times I felt like I was reading mm -hmm. uh, and other times I felt like I was just whispering into the listener's ear. Oh, and those were the best moments, you know. That's beautiful. And th that means also that, that we, we, the people that are reading slash listening to your story also can, can go on the ride with you in a different way, right. you know, because then we get to hear your inner life come through the voice as opposed to just the the words on the page that we imbue to some degree, you know, as we read it. Yeah, I think, I think so. Because when, when someone reads a book, it's, it becomes like a, 
a relationship between the the listener, the reader, and mm-hmm. the author. And the the reader brings their experience to the book. And I've had so many times from my books that people will come and they'll start telling me things in the book that aren't there, but that th- they brought their own experience and they're making assumptions about they're reading they're they're reading something that isn't even on the page. And I just stopped arguing with people. I learned that early on. It's just like you nod and you smile and and you realize they got what they needed out of it. And they yeah. they it they it, it became theirs. But I think with an audiobook, when you hear the I think that's a really good point. When you hear the author reading it, then you're hearing their interpretation. Yeah, their 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 life experience coming through. Like I can think of those uh, scenes at, at the mm, at the lunch table at a restaurant with you and your mom when you're, you know, asking her about, you know, getting permission or her acknowledgement or whatever for the for the next phase of the book oh yeah yeah right mm-hmm. restaurante avanti yes and those scenes are like very pivotal in like not only what you said but how you would say it to your mom would make it because there's so much history would make a huge difference on on how those right know, because there was i was there was a lot of manipulation on my part uh, I, I call it the steamroller you know mm-hmm. the, the part of me that just was going to like get what i wanted yeah. How, whatever I had to do to get it. And, you know, that was hard to reveal um, because it's, it's a character trait I'm not proud of. It, it, it can be effective at times, but I mean, it's, it's not one of my best characteristics. It's not necessarily in keeping with the image I want to portray of myself as this compassionate workshop leader that I have this like, I'm going to get it. And that scene really showed me, you know, showed me in my glory, making sure I was going to get what I wanted from my mother. Yeah. And she, she met me, you know, hundred percent. Yeah. So it beca- it creates a lot of dramatic tension because who's going to, who's going to win this? It's a power struggle. There's a lot of power struggle in this book and who's going to win, you know, is Laura going to get what she wants or is her mother going to say no? And you, you have to read the book to find out. Right. Right. And, and that's, that's, that's our engagement. That's for like, you know, what's going to happen. And, and you do it so potently and powerfully in all of those scenes. And there's so many twists and turns too. Um, and yeah, you're right. It's, it's having that vulnerability to expose those, those parts of ourselves. Uh, and, and you do it, you do it in such a way that you get us in touch with our own humanity. You know? Yeah. I got a, I got a really, um, terrific review, uh, mm-hmm. recently. And the woman said that her favorite part of the book was the, I'm not going to say what the line is, but this one line that I really hesitated to put in because it was like revealing the worst part of me. And she was so grateful that line was in the book because she said, all caregivers have these feelings and you were brave enough to reveal it. That makes me so happy for you. That, I mean, what I'm hearing is that you dug down for the truth of the truth of the truth and you put it in and the person who works in that world, I would imagine she works in that world or somewhere in that near that world recognized it. Right. Right. and that speaks volumes to your ability and your willingness to, to show up in that authentic way. For me, for me, one of the, the beautiful reoccurring moments is that drive or that, that lookout point that you go to several times throughout the narrative. And is there any moment there that, that, um, that you have a, a special you know, moment that you was like, oh yeah, that moment. I think that, yeah, there's a moment we're in the, we're in the car and, mm-hmm. My mother has just revealed like one bombshell after another about her past and her family. And she's getting like really close to the one thing I've always wanted her to say. Mm-hmm. And at that point, um, 
we start talking about how she likes theater um, more than real life. And that she does, she never really wanted real life relationships with men. She, she preferred being admired from afar. And then we start getting into this whole thing of Blanche Dubois and some of her lines, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers. So I love that. It, to me, that was such a mother daughter moment because we're having this super intense, you know, conversation and we just flipped right into this, this easy thing that we'd been doing together for decades. So that, that was one of my favorite moments because of the intimacy of it. And then I get out of the car and I go into the like gas station and I come back with two packages of Twizzlers and it's black for her and red for me. It's like, you know, just knowing what kind of candy she would want, you know, th that those kind of little connections, I think, um, were, were quite beautiful. Yeah. And, and that is a special scene because it, it burns in my memory. It burns in my memory, even the, the last part with the cigarette and, you know, there's this carved out moments that you've created in that scene that's just beautiful. I personally feel that someone could easily be hunting for you for the uh, for the rights to the uh, to the screenplay, and they want to turn this into a screenplay. It's because yeah, it's, well, it's a very visual story, absolutely. It yeah, it's very, very very potent, very powerful. So so one more time, one more time. It's yeah. To read the opening of the book, yeah, yeah, lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. Right. And uh, it's and it's available. So enjoy it. Enjoy the audiobook. And uh, just like our times together when we were working, you know, on, on the narrative, uh, it, our, our conversations are so fluid and endless and fun. <laughs> I just hate I hate for us to say au revoir. I know. I know. It's been really sweet. It's been a long time. Yeah. But we'll say aloha, which means, you know, more coming soon. Right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Joshua. Thank, thank you for a beautiful time. Okay. Okay. Bye bye.